New REI nurses. Take your career to the next level with NROX, the Nurses in REI Communication, Knowledge and Skills online certificate program from ASRM. NROX gives you practical applications you can use immediately and the opportunity to interact with other REI nurses and content experts. Increase your understanding of REI, make new professional connections, and gain confidence in your nursing role. To learn more about NROX, visit asrm.org nrcks. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we're talking about mental health burdens and the role of social health environments on reproductive health. To guide us in this, we welcome back Dr. Carmen Masurlian. Dr. Masurlian is Assistant Professor of Environmental Reproductive, Perinatal, and Pediatric Epidemiology, Departments of Epidemiology and Environmental Health, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and is chair of the ASRM Environment and Reproduction Special Interest Group. Dr. Masurlian, welcome back to ASRM Today. Thank you so much for having me again. I had such a great time the first time. We had to do it one more time to get through all the... I, we just, we had so much we had to cover, you know, and I, I, these are, and, and just to let people know, if you go back and listen to uh, the episode we published in August, this isn't really a part two necessarily. This is something that's just covering more of what we need to, in this in this very large sphere. So I, I didn't want to fool listeners by saying, well, there's part one and part two. It, it kind of works that way, but kind of not. So I want to open with asking you then uh, about about what are some of the primary or what are some of the major mental health, and I'll use the word burdens, uh, that, that infertile couples uh, may experience on their, on their journey? So that's a fabulous area that uh, unfortunately has been not very well studied, not very well documented, not really addressed fully in in the space of couples trying to get pregnant. So what do we know about this? We know that people who have pre-existing exposures to trauma, stress, early life exposures to poor experiences in, in childhood are more likely to have adverse outcomes in their reproductive life course. So they're more likely to be infertile, for example. But we also know the process of infertility and being infertile is a traumatic experience for the couple. So there's there's sort of like a vicious cycle that gets played out. So being infertile is a traumatic experience for couples, for both males and females. And that sometimes re-triggers original trauma from childhood. But nevertheless, what we see is that about 40 to 60% of both males and females who have a diagnosis of infertility struggle with severe anxiety and depression. Many also report PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And we know that um, there's a lot of comorbidity with um, reproductive outcomes and mental health exposures. So what we see in the literature is that these things play in sort of a vicious circle, which makes it really hard to treat, really kind of like the chicken and the egg, what comes first. What's really happening is that it's, like I said, just a cycle of exposure to stress through infertility, causing more anxiety and stress, which then causes more infertility and then causes more anxiety and stress. So we know that the body and the mind are connected. And when we have stress in the mind through anxiety and depression, that changes the endocrine system. There's changes in the HPA, H, um, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and also the HBG axis or the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So how that 
ovaries and testes produce hormones that then produce sperm and eggs. I think it's interesting too, you bring up, again, we're talking more about, you know, mental health, psych- psychological factors of things. Uh, and you brought up an interesting point that there's never enough, you know, research, but is it because it's easier to quantify something like alcoholism? You know, say, well, people who consume way too much alcohol are more prone to be infertile than trying to compartmentalize something like PTSD, you know, which which is a much more extensive thing to diagnose. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I mean, up until the pandemic, mental health issues were so stigmatized, you know, people self you know, self-disclosing any type of mental health issue, even even now in in the post-pandemic or chronic pandemic phase. I mean, there's still so much limitations in our ability to talk openly about mental health and talk openly about struggles that people face, individuals face, that couples face, even relationship troubles. And the pandemic's been a really incredible experience socially in terms of being able to allow that conversation to be front and center. And I think this has been driving some of the work that I'm doing in the space of fertility care is that infertile couples or subfertile couples have an enormous mental health burden and no one's paid attention to it in the course of time in terms of treatment, how we orient to couples in the in, in fertility centers or even couples that are at home not getting treatment, how they talk about mental health between themselves when they're trying to get pregnant and how important it is to address the mental health issue in the process of trying to conceive a pregnancy because it it actually hampers your ability to conceive that the stress levels go up, your cortisol levels go up. There's a whole HBA axis that I said that gets triggered that results in chronic stress and chronic um, elevated levels of hormones that then are not conducive for fertility. And it can shut down your production of how you produce eggs in a woman and can influence sperm quality in men. So the two things are so wrapped into each other, but the pandemics allowed us to really examine much more honestly and directly how people struggle with mental health issues. And that is on a whole continuum, right? So you don't need a full diagnosis of major depression disorder to be depressed or to have struggles with depression. You don't have to have full-blown generalized anxiety disorder as a diagnosis on the DSM-5 to be anxious. People experience these things on a continuum and there's a range of these feelings and emotional um, mood disorders that can play a part in the, the cycle of attempting pregnancy and failing in that attempt and then attempting pregnancy and failing in that attempt. And I think that's something that we don't spend enough time orienting to uh, a patient and talking to the couple about what their struggles are outside of the fact that they didn't produce enough eggs. How does that make them feel? And how can we support them in that process? Sometimes going to the root cause which is the stress and anxiety, the failure can address the biological cause, the actual inability to conceive a pregnancy. And I think we need to go backstream, downstream to look at what are what are the what, what is behind some of these um, emotional um, issues that might have roots in earlier life um, that actually might impact your current reproductive health. And I think that's really something that requires a big broad lens in terms of how we treat infertile people. And I think that that segues nicely actually into talking about the social environment, you know, component, because here we're talking about the more of the inner, you know, the inside of people, you know, the anxiety, the depression, the actual processes that go on inside someone. And you were just alluding to, you know, that there might be some traumatic event or there might be something, you know, outside of their control, right, that, that happened. Can you Can you talk a little bit about 
what what exactly do we mean when we talk about social environment? So that's such a nice question. I love it because it's really, really such an important part of reproductive health. And again, we don't spend enough time focusing on the social environment, how that impacts our reproduction. So we're working on a paper right now under review that's really examining the literature and the evidence to show or to demonstrate our hypothesis, which is that early life stress, so stress that happens in the first 10 years, 12 years, 13 years of life. We we talk about females in this particular case, but we're going to be focusing on males in another in another case. How exposure to stressors in the home, everything from emotional, sexual, physical abuse to neglect to family dysfunction, how those processes, how those experiences really shape your time to menarche, how you experience menarche and 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 your first periods, your symptoms around um, menses, your symptoms around your period for a young girl who's 12, 13, 14, how much distress she has around her period relating to premenstrual syndrome, and then something that's more severe, which is PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And what the literature is showing is really that PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, individuals that report that level of distress during their menstruation actually have three or four fold time increase exposure to early life stressors and early life trauma. And there's mechanisms that have been proposed in literature around that, both in animal studies and humans, suggesting, again, that there is a priming of the system, that cortisol levels are affected and adrenal glands are affected and hormonal imbalance happens that then triggers certain types of changes in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle that then results in more distress around symptoms, more emotional dysregulation around menstruation. And so all of these factors trigger changes in how you're body and your brain produce and orient to hormones that are required for reproduction. And there's not a lot of literature, but there's a growing body literature making these connections. And the paper that I'm working on is really linking up early life stress, so the social environment in in the first 10, 15 years of life, and how those exposures actually impact menstruation, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, time to pregnancy and infertility, postpartum depression, your ability to cope with menopause or perimenopause or distress around menopause, and then how that kind of plays a part across the arc of the reproductive cycle for a woman. And putting those things together, we've found that there's mechanisms involved, really important mechanisms that have been linked in animal studies. And also the correlate to that, or the, or like I said at the beginning, was that distress around these things causes more trauma. So if you're if you're having PMDD, that kind of triggers more anxiety and stress around your periods, which then becomes more symptomatic of your next cycle. So they kind of feed into each other. The same thing with infertility. So if you've had miscarriages or failed attempts at pregnancy, that in and of itself is identified as a trauma and then it re-triggers similar symptoms as you'd experienced as a child or as a young adult. And the kinds of trauma we're talking about is everything from sexual abuse, you know, sexual assault, sexual harassment, things that females have been exposed to. We know that one in five women experience some form of um, sexual trauma in her lifetime. It's a high prevalence event for a woman. And those women are at higher risk of some of these disorders that we see across the reproductive life cycle. Is it safe to say then that PMS and PMDD sort of, you know, this is where the confusion begins to happen for maybe many women and also maybe for many people trying to diagnose someone. Can we consider then PMS as, as itself a, a 
regular psychological encumbrance to a degree because I, I've talked with many people over the years, you know, my wife included, who's just been like, you know, it can be very traumatic, you know, as, as, as these go through. Yeah. That's right. So again, everything's on a continuum. So there's, there's levels of distress that are manageable in a day-to-day life. And then there's others that lose work and time away from their office, from their performance at their jobs because of the distress that's caused by PMS. And that would be considered, you know, more more pronounced symptoms that um, result in dysfunction or dysregulation in your day-to-day life. And I think one of the things you're touching upon, which is really important, is how under-recognized that is and how little care there's provided or offered or even questions around this to young women and aging women around how they cope with their menstruation and the symptoms and feelings that they have associated with that. Most PCPs don't ask about it. Most OB-GYNs don't ask about it unless you self-disclose saying, you know, I'm having really bad symptoms with my period. Nobody's really questioning you or asking any kind of assessment around this. And without proper identification, there's not proper support. And so individuals that have severe symptoms around their menstruation, it can also trigger feelings of suicide, suicide ideation, suicide attempts. I mean, these are more extreme cases, but they're not they're not super rare in the sense that, you know, if 5% of women experience this or 8% of women experience this, that's a big burden across the population. And we need to have opportunities as people working in the space of uh, reproductive medicine to help support females that experience this level of distress. And knowing that that might be an early marker of other distress to come, I think is really, really important. So one of the messages and key recommendations that we make in this manuscript in this paper is early identification of PMDD in young females is really important because it might be a a precursor sign or a sentinel sign of more trouble, for lack of a better word, to come down in the reproductive cycle. So if a young female is experiencing PMDD at 13, 14, 15, 16, 18, 20, and that might be a symptom that she will also have more difficulties around her pregnancy attempts, around postpartum depression, around things like eating disorders resurfacing at time of pregnancy, which is another thing that we don't talk a lot about. But for women who've experienced eating disorders in their early adolescence or young adult life, pregnancy can also be a trigger for some of those comorbidities, those those previous sort of mental health issues that they might have kept under watch or under control with medication or with therapy in their early years might resurface during times of pregnancy. And so the the whole mind-body connection around reproduction, I think, is really important. The mental health aspects of that, we need to see and take more seriously as potentially being markers of uh, potential future distress around reproduction. And how do we identify those people early so that we could support them and provide care, maybe medication, other things to sort of regulate either their cycles or other wise to help them cope with that and then being mindful that this might be an indication that they might have more struggles around fertility, planning pregnancies differently, et cetera, et cetera. My guest today is Dr. Carmen Masurlian. We are talking about mental health burdens and the role of social health environments on reproductive health. We're almost out of time for this episode. I want to ask you, is there a checklist or or some sort of resources? Because it, it seems that what is required here in, in dealing with these things, it, it seems like you, you need a mix, right, of, of, of different, you know, different resources, different providers. So first and foremost, we start with education, educating clinicians and medical providers, OB-GYNs, PCPs, nurses that work with reproductive people, um, family planning centers, 
education at that level is number one. And then education on, on, on the patient level and the person level so that they are more mindful and aware of their symptoms, monitoring symptoms, tracking your period, tracking your mental health symptoms with your period, really important findings. Now there's tons of menstrual tracking apps out there that also allow you to track some of your mental health, putting those pieces together and be like, wow, you know, when I'm ovulating, I have these kinds of mental health issues. And when I'm in the luteal phase, I have these kinds of mental health issues as I approach my menses, you know, other symptoms start to get triggered and understanding that and then bringing that to the attention of physicians. Those are key points. We have some pamphlets that we've developed on mental health and reproduction that we've produced and have on our website that are, you know, to start getting that conversation going. We're hoping that our pamphlets are going to be distributed through ASRM and some of the public uh, work that you do at ASRM. So we're really excited about that. And we're working with um, public affairs people at ASRM to, to get that off. And make presenting at, at conferences like ASRM, giving talks, bringing this to the table, highlighting these issues. And the issue really, again, going back to the beginning, which is really the infertile couple and how much they struggle, the strain on the relationship, the strain on the male partner, the strain on the female partner, the strain on the marriage or the relationship. How do we support couples in their mental health so that they have more better transition, no matter what the outcome is? Some couples don't ever end up conceiving and we still need to care for them and we still need to be um, supportive of their, whatever that outcome ends up being and helping to provide resources for all avenues and all outcomes, I think is really important and orienting um, the approach to be really couple-based, I think is really the wave of, of the future for this field. Absolutely. Education on all fronts. And we will link to that website in our show notes for everybody uh, so that you can just click on it and go see uh, what Dr. Masserlian, uh is is describing. Thank you so much for coming back today to to talk more about this. And and I, I've, I'm just going to I'm just going to have to put you in a regular slot. I think that's just what's going to have to happen. That would be amazing. I like to come back and talk about the built environment and then the natural environment next. See, there we go. We have so much. We see, ladies and gentlemen, we have so much more to cover. But I'd like to thank Dr. Carmen Masserlian. Uh, thank you again so much for for coming back and talking with us. Thanks so much for having me again. I had an amazing time, and I wish all the listeners the best. You can subscribe and rate the show on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcast from. If you have questions about the show, you can email us, asrm at asrm.org. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.